This is episode 12, Trash Talking with Eco Warriors. You're tuning in to Trash Talking with Eco Warriors, where women share inspiring stories about their careers in green business, sustainability, and conservation. Here's your host and founder of Trashy Beauty, Barbara Lee. Hello, Eco Warriors. I hope the first week of your new year has been absolutely smashing. I'm over here in sunny San Francisco, bouncing back after a bit of a cold, but I'm on the mend and looking forward to starting this year off right. Today's episode features Paula Pebsworth, an independent primatologist researcher. She has studied a particular behavior in primates known as soil eating or geophagy in Japan and South Africa. Paula and I had a great conversation ranging from how she would just ask people if she could volunteer her time as a research assistant and how her witnessing the human-wildlife conflict in Africa has shaped her ideas about behaviors that humans can take to help make the planet a little bit kinder to wildlife. Paula obviously cares very deeply about the environment and the animals that are within it, and she has spent a lot of time studying them in the field. It's fantastic to hear about the unique experiences that she's had as a researcher and the insights that she gives into pursuing your dreams and living sustainably. Now, let's get trash talking. Thanks for being on, Paula. It's a pleasure to speak with you. You too. Tell us a little bit about you. What do you do? Where are you from? I do all kinds of things, but academically, my uh, area of interest is self-medicative behavior. Um, what I want to know is how animals in the wild maintain their health. Um, what are, is it something that they eat? Uh, I mean, I'm a firm believer in the idea of let food be thy medicine, and I think animals do that a lot, but they also get into kind of a crisis mode where they'll seek out medicinal plant and other things that they do sort of prophylactically to maintain their health. And my um, area of focus has been um, soil eating for the last, I don't know, five, six years at mm-hmm. least. Um, and I, I was born in Texas, but I've lived all over the place. So uh, I spent my formative years in Iowa, so I often consider myself an Iowan. But when I'm here in Texas, I consider myself a Texan. So <laughs> home is sort of wherever I'm I'm hanging my hat. Sure, sure. And you spend a little bit of time traveling because you do your research kind of like out in the field. I've spent a lot of time traveling and I I love to travel. And it's something that I feel so conflicted with because I know that by traveling, you're increasing carbon emissions. So (laughs) I really struggle with myself about that. But I do, I've been doing research in Uganda. I did my doctoral research in South Africa. Um, and I have a new project I'm hoping to start in India, but you know, whether that goes or not, I, I want to spend some time in India. I'm fascinated by their culture and kind of the problems that they have. How did you come into this topic? Like, how did you get started with this particular area of research? Started when I did some volunteer work in Madagascar. I was like around 36. No, no, that's a lie. I was, um, in my late twenties. And I had always wanted to do work with primates, and I just decided I would reach out to um, a primatologist I really admire, Dr. Patricia Wright, and ask if I could come and volunteer my time in Madagascar. And she said yes. 
while I was there, I observed this just interesting behaviors, birds that were like taking ants and rubbing them on their feathers and dusting. And one of the other researchers said, oh, you know, that's all self-medicated behavior. Those are things that animals do to maintain their health. And I was just smitten by the topic. And they (laughs) said, well, you know, if that's what you're interested in, you need to become friends with uh, Mike Huffman. He's like the world leading expert on that behavior. And so, again, I reached out to Mike and, and we have become friends over the years. He was my academic advisor for my PhD, and that's how I got started. Wow, that's a really interesting start. So you were already studying um, environmental sciences, or what did you study in school? I My degree was in, my bachelor's and my master's was in biology, and um, I have a very strong chemistry background, background and um, I was offered a master's a situation where I could look at um, the effects of lead arsenate, which was a pesticide they used for many, many years on apple orchards, and what what was the effect in the soil. So I did that for my master's, which it's, it's fascinating. I mean, had I known, I couldn't have planned it better because having a strong background in soil science really prepared me to do work in soil eating behavior. It's called um, geophagy or geophagy. And yeah, that's how those two sort of came together. Wow, so cool. Can we go back a little bit further though? Why did you pick biology? I was really shaped by my parents getting National Geographics. <laughs> I mean, I know that sounds ridiculous, but I think Marlon Perkins, Mutual of Omaha, Wild Kingdom, you know, as a kid, the kind of the images that we brought into our home and without a doubt, National Geographic. And I remember, you know, the there was an issue with Jane Goodall on the cover, and she's got her hand outreach to this young chimp. And I'm thinking, wow, you know, I'd really like to do that. And, you know, my parents sort of saying, well, you know, there are lots of things you can do in life. You could, you know, be a teacher, you could be a nurse, but I'm not so sure about that. <laughs> and so I think, you know, over time, I just said, you know, why not? You know, you, you just have to try. It's better to have tried and failed than never to have tried at all. Sure, sure. What do your parents think of your career path now? Um, My dad uh, died in 2011, but he was um, a man that I greatly admired, and he loved all things nature, and he was extremely supportive of kind of my career path. My mom is, you know, my biggest champion. Um, She's always supportive of anything I've ever done. I mentioned to her on the phone yesterday that I was hoping to start a project in India. And she, you know, she's like, oh, do I need to start saving my money? So she comes everywhere I'm working. And, you know, she sort of lives vicariously through through me, but they're they're proud of of whatever we choose to do. Can you talk about like an inspiring moment that you had? I know you talked about like seeing this weird behavior in nature, but what was one of the most inspirational moments that you've had out in nature? Oh, geez, you know, I have had um, so many. Um, well, give us your top like two or three then. I, I think it's a couple of things, but one of them that really stands out is when I was in Madagascar. Um, it was like, that's a place where it rains and it rains in such a way that it doesn't matter whether you're wearing a raincoat or not, you're going to be completely drenched. And it was just pouring and I was absolutely soaked 
and we were um, following this family of golden bamboo lemurs, which are extremely rare. And within the park, there was three. There was the female, adult female, adult male, and a juvenile. And all of a sudden, we saw the male and the juvenile, but we didn't see the adult female. And I was getting a little worried. Um, and we came around the corner and just pouring. And then this female pops her head up, and she's holding in her mouth this newborn baby. And it was like, they're, they're completely, their tummy is golden and they're brown, but the newborns are all white. And it was just such an amazing moment to see this new life, you know, of a very rare species. And just, you know, this idea of, you know, these moments can happen under any circumstances. And I've never thought about I feel differently about rain now, you know, being, being <laughs> wet, being in the rain, because I've had some amazing moments in the rain. That's really cool. Did you have yeah, another one that you wanted to share? When I picked a site to do my PhD research, it was in South Africa, and it was with this amazing couple, which I think you've spoken to one of the owners, Jenny Giddy. Mm -hmm. And um, as I was looking at the map of the site, I could see they had this old abandoned kaolin mine. And I was asking her, you know, do you know if the baboons eat soil? Because previously kaopectate, you know, it has had kaolin in it. Um, it is like kind of what's what alleviates GI distress. And so I wanted to know, you know, do the baboons eat that soil? And she's like, ah, oh, you know, we've never seen that. And I hadn't been at the site too long and was following the baboons all day and then um, had myself positioned in such a way that I could watch them coming down this uh, this hill. I mean, it was a huge troop, over 100 individuals strong. And they had this wide, exposed surface, with like a clay surface. And all of a sudden, the baboons started coming and each taking a couple bites of the soil and moving on. And to see them eating soil for the first time, I mean, it was amazing. And I was with some other primatologists. And, uh, it's, I don't know, it sounds ridiculous, but it's a weird thing to see an animal eat dirt or, you know, it's not dirt, it's soil right. it's a, and it's a specific kind of soil. But, um, to sort of have my suspicions confirmed that mm -hmm. they would use that, um, as a medicament, a natural medicament. And then I was able to set up camera traps and monitor that behavior because they did it frequently. And wow. I had literally thousands and thousands of images of, of them <laughs> eating soil, and that's what shaped my, my dissertation. Amazing. I used camera traps again in Uganda in this latest project I've had, and it was the same sort of idea to monitor areas where chimpanzees can't come to eat soil. And I think, I mean, every time I go through my images, it's like Christmas. <laughs> I mean, I get so many amazing animals, just either they're passing through or just um, they're also coming to eat soil. And I just still find it fascinating. Awesome. Awesome. So on your travels, um, one of the things that I think you and I touched on a little bit because I saw this a lot when I was living in Kenya, is that primates, because I think, I don't know, you can confirm this, because they're so closely related to us, they often enjoy some of the same foods and activities as us, and, and they often came by, and they would break into people's houses, even if you, if you left a window open, you walked away from that room for a second, they would be in your house. Non-human primates in general are very, very opportunistic, and baboons in particular, 
they're extremely dexterous, they're smart, and they're also very, very patient. I mean, they have sort of figured it out, like, you know, being able to raid, you know, break into someone's home or get into trash and eat human food waste, you know, that's high calorie, it often contains salt or fat or sugar, they just cannot pass up that opportunity. And because we're such a wasteful species, they have ample opportunities and they will just continue to have that behavior until we change our own. Um, And I think that it's just that sort of dynamic between, you know, a very wasteful species like humans and other species. It sets up, you know, the stage for huge conflict. And we see that worldwide. Can you explain a little bit about human-wildlife conflict? Because it might be the first time that some of our listeners have heard of this. It is when humans and other animals are competing for resources, and in particular, food resources. So like in South Africa, where I did my research, um, there were farms all around the nature reserve. And the baboons would go to the farm, they would crop raid, um, they would, you know, eat the corn, they had cattle there, they would try and forge on the little pelletized food that the farmer puts out for the cows. You know, like, again, it's breaking into homes, it's it's any any kind of food that they, they can find. And that's just, that's that's what it is. And, and there's a whole new area of research that we're trying to come up with strategies to solve, you know, this human conflict. And, you know, like in Kenya, I think like there's a lot of conflict between humans and elephants Mm -hmm. and they're trying uh, to set up like use bees or they're using drones Mm -hmm. or, you know, just being very creative solutions to sort of drive them back into kind of their own space. And part of the problem is that we've encroached upon wildlife habitat to such a huge extent you know, the lines are blurred for them. What is their space and what is our space? And in the end, their space is any place that they can get to. Right. They're all artificial lines, you know. Um, so that's what's, you know, it's been a huge problem within in South Africa and all of Africa for baboons. And it's having devastating effects on their populations. And I think, you know, people do, they can get to a point where they're just, they don't want to think creatively anymore. And the tool, the, the easiest tool is is the gun. And so they just kill animals that are crop raiding or they have a conflict with. And I, I mean, that's something that's really, really important to me. And I'd say probably, you know, in my lifetime, if I can help kind of solve or lessen that human wildlife conflict, I mean, I would consider that a a good life and a good career goal. Do you have any advice for people who maybe are thinking about wanting to do something with the type of career that you have where you're working in conservation or sustainability? Do you have any tips for people of how to get into those areas of work? I mean, I think definitely don't be afraid to ask people. It's like when I wrote Patricia Wright and asked, you know, may I come and volunteer? I mean, people do say yes. I think we can become kind of, you know, pessimistic and, oh, that isn't going to work. You just try, you know, it's better to have tried and failed than never to have tried at all. So, you know, just keep asking because people often say yes. And I also think people need to be prepared to volunteer their time. I mean, I have donated a tremendous amount of my my time and I still do. And, you know, I'm, I'm always saying to either my children or friends, I mean, try to find a job that you love so much that you do for free because you may be doing that. 
So, you know, again, um, when I was in South Africa, I had six amazing field assistants and they all volunteered their time. And you have to kind of think about what is it that you're getting out of the volunteer experience. And it needs to be, you know, meaningful for the volunteer as well as the researcher. But there's lots of uh, websites. I mean, in particular, if you're interested in, in primates, there's a primate information network that lists all kinds of volunteer opportunities. And, you know, just, just jump in. Pick the one that you're the most interested in that will offer you the best skills. If you're interested in spatial ecology, you'd want to learn how to use radio telemetry or GIS and, you know, really acquire great skills that will help make you more competitive for either a job or for um, some kind of academic um, area like a, a graduate school. Awesome. Yeah, those are great tips. And you mentioned some people already, but do you have specific role models that you kind of look to and mentors who have helped you along the way? Most people my age, you know, they have to, if they're honest, they'll tell you that Jane Goodall is a role model and <laughs> she, she continues to be active and I'm just amazed at her stamina. I absolutely adore David Attenborough, and I think that if I can manage to have the enthusiasm he has for nature, you know, I'll be happy the rest of my life. I really admire Barbara Kingsolver. I think she's a fascinating author, and has the biological slant to it. Um, I love everything she's written. Probably the first book I I read by her was The Poisonwood Bible, Mm -hmm. and I hadn't spent time in Africa then, and I wanted to go and see Africa, and I just love her writing style. And then she came out with Animal Vegetable Miracle, which was just such an eye-opener for me. I love that book, and I just, you know, the idea of living more sustainably you know, do you want to be a primatologist and spend time in Africa? And, you know, you're like moving between the U.S. and uh, other places where there are primates, or do you want to set down roots and, you know, have a a huge garden that you can live sustainably? And, you know, I'm, I'm always pulled. Yeah, there's some really cool stuff like homesteading in that that's really kind of taking ground in the U.S., which is quite interesting. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Do you have any other favorite books, movies, other podcasts that you listen to? Recently, I gave a talk about climate change, and I really like Naomi Klein. I think she's a phenomenal writer. Yeah, her book, This Changes Everything. Paul Hawkins, anything Paul Hawkins written, his new book, Drawdown. I find those are really inspirational. Uh, that the whole, I mean, you can't be interested in the environment and not care about climate change. So I think at the moment, what's kind of occupying my mind is the topic of climate change so anything by them bill mckibben i find him also really inspiring awesome awesome that's a great list do you uh do you get out a lot where do you find like the inspiration the motivation to keep going with what you're doing texas is a huge state and i mean i i get my inspiration without a doubt by spending time in nature um Tonight we're going camping and tomorrow we're hiking so i mean i think it's it's that you know just having the opportunity to sort of reflect upon this amazing planet that we live on. And I don't know about you, but I'm not interested in going to Mars. I mean, there are people who are like, oh, that's our plan, plan B. You know, if, if, if everything goes to hell here, we, we can just go to Mars. It's like, well, I don't want to go to Mars. You know, the places I've traveled, the things I've seen, whether it's Victoria Falls or, you know, this last summer we went to Machu Picchu in Peru. I mean, the planet Earth is 
amazingly and stunningly beautiful. So when I have the chance, you know, I, I take it all in and that's, that's what inspires me. I actually don't think it's happened yet. You know, I'm, I'm hoping that the best is yet to come. Um, that's sort of my idea. You know, I, I, I have had lots of small moments and because, you know, I've worked, I mean, I've been a biologist for a long time and I've helped lots of other people with their projects and whether it was, you know, misnetting bats in New Mexico or doing some sort of vegetation surveys in Utah or, you know, whatever it is that I've done, you know, I've always enjoyed that, but I, I really feel like, you know, how it is in life, things, things sort of, your skills, they culminate, your ideas, your experiences, and, and I just really hope that the best is yet to come. Yeah, awesome. That's a good way of looking at it. Um, what do you think is really important about the work that you do, or maybe it's just the experiences that you're having and who you touch and how you get this information out to people. I know I saw your uh, your video online that you did with your friend's collaboration project. What do I think is the most important thing about my work? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I think it has a lot to do with, um, at the moment, you know, just learning how to coexist peacefully with wildlife. It's, it's, it's that. Um, and just looking, trying to be creative. I'm on a, a board member on a, a baboon conservation organization called Baboon Matters. And um, I think a lot of the work that we're trying to do is just that, to be the voice. You know, I want to be the voice for those who can't, who have no voice. And that, that is what's one thing that's really, really important to me, especially animals. I mean, I know there are lots of people that advocate for other other humans but i i tend to want to you know to advocate for for those who have no voice and especially those that um are maligned people absolutely hate baboons i mean it's either you hate them or you love them there doesn't seem to be anything in between and spending time with them and understanding their social structure i i feel their plight mm -hmm. and for a long time you know after I left uh, the field I missed them profoundly they they have their own personalities and you grow to um, to care about them in ways that you wouldn't have thought you could yeah I, I want to be a voice for them yeah and kind of circling back around to something you touched on earlier about being kind of at a crosshairs between wanting to travel and do your research and see the world and be inspired by nature, but also this kind of conflict um, within you about what's the impact that you're having on the environment by traveling. Um, do you have three tips for people who want to be more eco-conscious and live a more sustainable lifestyle? I have lots of them, but I think probably the, <laughs> the ones that kind of come to mind, people sort of like can kind of discount like small things that you do, but I just feel like the culmination of many small things matter, you know, whether it's you stop using straws or you take reusable bags to the grocery store, or maybe, you know, at the moment I've been on this, like, I want to stop using plastic. I don't want, you know, I don't want to buy any plastic. And so recently I bought, you know, this bamboo toothbrush and, you know, I've bought used clothing for a long time. So it's like those many small things, I think they matter. I think it also, you know, to shift to a plant-based diet, is an important thing to do. I mean, he's saying that you have to be 
vegan or you have to be vegetarian, but you know, if you're somebody who, who eats meat, you know, most days of the week that you try and cut back, or maybe you just start with a meatless Monday and then it's, you know, more and more over time, you just make this shift to a plant-based diet. The last thing I'll say, just because I'm a primatologist, is to avoid palm oil. And it's really, really hard. If you start looking at labels, so many things contain palm oil. And some people say, okay, you know, just pick the products that have certified sustainable palm oil where that deforestation didn't happen to produce that palm oil. And I find it really difficult. So oftentimes I just say, just try to avoid it. And if there there are small things that you can do, I don't know why we got into this habit of like, oh, we're going to use a body wash and we're going to use products that have a lot of palm oil in them. But you can find substitutes and go back to just a bar of soap. You know, there you avoid the plastic and you avoid the palm oil. I've made this sort of shift to using things like a bar shampoo and a bar conditioner. And so I'm not buying the bottle anymore. Yeah. So you touched on a lot of things that I kind of want to talk about a little bit. And some of them are a little bit controversial. Um, But like, for example, with like the plant-based diet, I found when I was living abroad, it was quite easy to eat things that are just local foods because you don't have a lot of access when you're living in the middle of Kenya to different products that I think people associate with being luxury products and things that we need to have as part of our diet. And I find that in the U.S., when people subscribe to a specific type of diet, like, oh, I need to be plant-based, they might end up over-consuming on products that are coming from around the globe. Do you want to talk to that a little bit? Because I know it is like a tricky balance. It is. And, um, and I think Barbara Kingsover talks about that a lot in her book, Animal Vegetable Miracle, and that whole idea of you know, eating locally. And what what resources can you find that, that you can purchase? Yeah, you know, it's not perfect. But I think if you can try to either grow your own food, I mean, that would be like the best case scenario. You know what the source is and you know how it's been grown. So grow your own food. If you can't grow your own food, support local farmers. Um, go to your farmer's market and, you know, just try to be mindful of, you know, where is your food coming from and how far it's traveled. I mean, you know, just looking at labels again, whether it's palm oil or that, you know, you want to buy dried strawberries and you realize they've come from China. I mean, it makes absolutely no sense. And so just be very mindful of what it is that you are supporting and what you're buying. I I mean, we always just need to be mindful about, you know, what are the impacts of your purchasing power. We've also got, you know, great superfoods from North America, and you just need to kind of tailor your diet to what what you can find locally. And, you know, when you're in Peru, okay, eat your quinoa and have the opportunity to enjoy different food sources from from the source. It's one thing I really loved about, we lived in Germany for three years, and they do a great job about with eating seasonally. So when the plums were available, all kinds of plums, things, products were available, and then they were gone. And so that idea of eating seasonally, I just think is really is smart. Um, why are we eating strawberries in January? It, it is quite a, kind of bizarre. I think we've gotten so used to um, this permanence of like, I can just have the convenience of everything I want whenever I want. Um, shifting the topic a little bit, um, do you have like a really particularly difficult moment in your career that you had to overcome? 
I don't know if it's like a difficult moment, but I think you'll find for many women, trying to balance family and your career is a struggle. I mean, it's a challenge. You know, you want to be a good parent and you want to be a good researcher and Sometimes they don't always mesh well together. You know, this last few years, deciding to go back and do work in Uganda and being away from my family for months at a time has been a challenge. I was lucky uh, when I did my PhD that my family could accompany me and the nature reserve that I did my work on, they welcomed my children. And that was a phenomenal opportunity for me and for them. I mean, you always keep hoping that those kinds of situations can be created organically, but sometimes they don't. And just kids get to a certain age and, you know, they're not interested in living in India. You know, they want to stay wherever they are and be with their friends. So balancing family and career is is really a hard one. And have you found any other solutions or helpful tips that you have for someone who's trying to balance both or maybe they're trying to look at a career where they are going to be like traveling doing a lot of research but they do want to settle down and have a family things are so much easier than they used to be I mean (laughs) when I first started um going to Uganda in the late well when I first went to to Madagascar in the mid 90s you know you had faxes and that was it you had snail mail and you had faxes and now I mean, when I go into the field, I can actually Skype from my field site to my family. Wow. Uh, And, you know, the the plan I have with T-Mobile, I have free texting. And I think there's so many ways to keep in touch, whether it's Facebook or whether it's Instagram, whether it's Snapchat. I mean, you just have to decide for your family, you know, what is the preferred media and, 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 and oftentimes it's guided by your child. You know, they'll tell you, okay, Facebook is passe. I don't use that anymore. But, you know, I will connect with you, you know, on Snapchat. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I think that definitely you can take advantage of those opportunities. Great. Awesome. Um, just want to wrap up. Where can people find more information about you? I know that you've got, you know, videos online. and It'd be more just through the, the articles that I've written or people have written about me. Yeah, no, I mean, people can can write me and I'm happy to um, have a dialogue with them. Thanks so much for your time, Paula. Thank you so much for having me. I had such a great chat with Paula and I love what a cool life she has lived as a researcher. You can read her research papers online. They're linked in the show notes. And if you want to reach out to Paula, you can email her directly at ppebsworth at mac.com. Again, if you're enjoying these podcast episodes, we would really appreciate if you would subscribe, rate, review, tell your friends about this podcast so they can listen in as well. I have a really good friend of mine named Tom who has been listening in and he's been taking small actions to change his behaviors. So for this year, he switched over to a titanium utensil set and now he doesn't use any plastic utensils when he's visiting his clients, which again amazing great job tom i hope that this podcast has inspired other people write in and tell me your stories i would love to hear about your green resolutions for 2018 again tune in next time eco warriors and stay green thanks for talking dirty with us tune in next week for more trash talking with eco warriors for more inspiration follow us on instagram at trashy beauty co